0: Tree: A Seminar on Freedom with Bill Ayers.
1: Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome back to Under the Tree: a Seminar on Freedom. I'm Bill Ayers, and I'm here with Light Ilee, Roxana Espos and Jordan Allen, gathered in the spirit and the memory of Malik Alim for our seminar on freedom.
2: Thanks to Tom Morello for Let Freedom Ring, the opening theme song for each episode. And thanks as well for Tom's activism, his steady quest for justice, for peace, and for freedom. Tom has a dazzling new book out called Whatever It Takes. It's a photo book that tracks his lifelong mission as an artist and an activist. Pick it up. TomMorelloBook.com. One word, TomMorelloBook.com.
1: We're broadcasting from the traditional unceded lands of the Potawatomi, the Ojibwe and the Odawa, and we're transmitting as always on the freedom frequency, calling on you to join us as we look uneasily at the world we've inherited and struggle toward a world that could be or should be, but is not yet.
2: We tune into first and fundamental questions. What is freedom? How do we get free? What are the freedom dreams that encourage us and drive us forward? Good questions for kids to think about, good questions for all of us.
1: Our first regular feature is a moment of Zen, the quiet contemplation of a poem. And today's poem is The Thing Is by Ellen Bass.
2: To love life, to love it even when you have no stomach for it, and everything you've held dear crumbles like burnt paper in your hands, your throat filled with the silt of it. When grief sits with you, it's tropical heat thickening the air, heavy as water, more fit for gills than lungs. When grief weights you like your own flesh, only more of it, an obesity of grief. You think, how can a body withstand this? Then you hold life like face between your palms, a plain face, no charming smile, no violet eyes. And you say, yes, I will take you. I will love you again.
1: Thanks, lady. Our second regular feature is a free write where you can pause the podcast for a minute or an hour and reflect for a moment on the page. Today's prompt is, when were you close to death? It could be a near-death experience, the death of a pet, the death of a friend or something you witnessed. When were you close to death? We'll be right back.
0: Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews. And follow us on Instagram at underthetreepodcast.
1: Some of you have undoubtedly heard about the death of Chase's mom, our grandmother and our sister, Kathy Boudin. We're wrapped in grief right now for what we've lost and filled with joy for all that we had. The evening of her passing, May 1st, May Day 2022, I wrote this short note. Kathy Boudin is gone. She died just as she'd lived, fighting for life, surrounded by love, intrepidly building community, and casting those invisible but sturdy threads in every direction, connecting family and friends, colleagues and comrades, neighbors and strangers to be loved by Kathy, to love her, lit up the whole sky. Kathy is dead, but fire doesn't die. Light and heat and love and desire go on and on, and so does she. Rest in power, sister comrade.
2: Kathy Boudin was my adopted grandmother. Whenever I talked about her to friends, I would call her my grandmother, just that. They always knew that I had two other grandmothers, and a couple of times they asked me, how do you have three? I never quite knew how to answer, but it always made sense in my brain. She was my grandmother, and I loved and still love her so much. Thanks, lady.
1: I'm going to leave you for a bit, Lighty, and go interview a colleague, friend, and comrade of mine named Wayne Au. Wayne's a professor in the School of Educational Studies at the University of Washington Bothell, a scholar activist, an engaged social justice organizer, and a longtime author and editor at my favorite teaching magazine, Rethinking Schools. I'll be back, and we can finish up then, Okay. Okay. How you doing
0: doing all right Bill how are you
1: I'm uh, really well um, what are you up to today
0: today besides talking with you uh, I don't know meetings rethinking schools meetings uh, you know all sorts of good stuff like that
1: yeah I, I mentioned rethinking schools when I introduced you um, and rethinking schools is my absolute favorite uh, teacher magazine it's practical it's theoretical it's grounded and you've been an editor there for how long
0: uh, probably since I went to grad school, UW Madison, they sort of pulled me in at around maybe 2003. So, wow. um, it's been a minute. It's almost, ugh, I haven't even thought about that. It's getting close to 20 years, I guess. It's huh? so
1: funny because I still <laughs> think of you, I still think of you back at Berkeley high school when you were a teacher with my brother. Um, yep.
0: Yep. <laughs> he
1: just retired and a couple of people, uh, several people came from your, your high school in Berkeley. It was a lot of fun. Terrific. Nice. nice. So let me ask you a couple of quick things um, just to get us started. But one is uh, wondering where you're finding joy in these dark and dismal times.
0: Where am I finding joy? Wow. That's a tough one because we are indeed in, in the moment. I mean, I think right now I, of course, uh, find it in my family. You know, um, my my partner and my son um, are really just, I don't know, you know, it's just sources of beauty and support and and I think the pandemic has sort of got all of us to sort of, you know, reengage with our relations in some really different and intense and deep ways. And so I want to sort of like recognize that as being, you know, a critical piece for me. Um, the, you know, other places that I find joy is just really, for me, it's just, I don't know, it's always in the work, right? And and I mean that in the sense of like, um, you know, doing, like, like writing about stuff, thinking about stuff, like, you know it's always this double-sided coin for me because part of it is our I feel like our work or my work at least I just speak just to speak for myself you know a lot of it comes out of, comes out of our pain and our angst right the things that I choose to write about the stuff I want to engage with um, both in terms of like my writing for rethinking schools or doing scholarly writing you know there's an angst in me about like there's something that's got to be fixed and I really need to like you know address this thing and so um uh, for instance I, I have a I have a paper that's coming out pretty soon that's around sort of how do we re, how do we really re-understand uh, the racialization of Asian Americans and the mono minority in education um, and take doing it in a way that takes like you know transnational racial capitalism really seriously in that work and that came out of all the pain of the anti-Asian racism and stuff that had been accumulating across um, you know the, the last couple of years but on the other hand to like think it through and then and then produce this thing that I I hope can help further our movement and how we engage in the world is also what gives me joy too, right? Um, And so there's that piece of it. And then, you know, I also like, there's things like martial arts and wushu bring me joy, right? Things that I do and and bad TV, you know, I'm Uh, I'm deep into pop pop culture and bad TV. So, you know.
1: (laughs) You know, um, one of the things that I really love about your work is that you both live a dialectical kind of existence in, in many ways, um, and, and I want to get into what that might mean. But you explain dialectics better than anyone I know, and the reason I say that is I've been teaching your book, A Marxist Education, Learning to Change the World. I've been teaching it at university level for as long as it's been out, I find it really helpful, and students find it helpful. Tell you one quick story. Uh, an older student in her mid-50s, a grandmother, who told me she didn't feel she belonged in a doctoral program. She wasn't smart enough, and um, she, the other kids, the other young people, not even young people, the other doctoral students all seemed so smart, and I kept encouraging and encouraging her. Two weeks ago or three weeks ago, we read your book. A couple weeks ago, we read Barbara Ransby's book, and—, and uh, making all black lives matter and there was an argument about um respectability politics which is something barbara writes about and this woman who was uncertain whether she belonged in the doctoral program turned to the class and said we have to look at this dialectically and i said damn that's going to give me energy to teach for another decade you know (laughs) the the fact that she said it and she was drawing on you she found your book difficult. She read it two times and um, and really dug into it. But I'd like you to explain to our listeners who don't always use this language, and but I think always live this life, explain contradiction, explain dialectics for a minute, if you would.
0: <laughs> oh, man, Bill, you didn't prep me for this. <laughs> yeah, moment. yeah. yes, Yeah, just a minute, you know. I mean, the thing I mean, I'll talk about in terms of what appeals to me about dialectics as a way of understanding the world, right? Dialectics, you know, understands that everything is in motion at all times. There is no sort of solid, reified thing sitting there that is stagnant. Which means that we're always developing. And I'm talking even like, you know, if you want to look at it scientifically, you know, uh, from the physical sciences, like even things that we consider to be solid matter, we actually know are like, you know, atoms and stuff that are mo- that are moving rapidly and that things are degrading or they're evolving, right? And so, so I love the dial- I love that dialectics really understands everything's in motion and the complexity that embraces. And then the other piece that's really central to, to dialectics is just that that contradiction is actually really the source of that motion, right? And so and so there's always tension and we're always working through that tension and that's always that's always essentially forcing us, or maybe force is the wrong word. It's always allowing us um, to to find to find movement, to to grow and 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 sort of continue to sort of um, uh, be in relation with each other, because that's what we are always thinking, is that, that's what we always are. And then that's the other piece about dialectics, is because it sees that movement and contradiction and process all going on together, it also then understands that we are all very connected uh, and we are all relational all the time. And so um, I, to me, I've, I've embraced it just because it, it helps us, to me, it helps me, um, you know, really understand how the world works um, in ways that I think are really important. And the flip side of this is, is also that the materialist side of things in terms of like understanding like material reality as this thing that exists out there that we are engaging with in a dialectical way. Um, and and that um, it's, it's through that engagement that we, you know, seek to change the world and improve the world. Um, and we have to sort of recognize that we're, we're always struggling with those material realities.
1: Okay, so let's go back and, and go a little deeper. So you say okay. even in the physical, social world, physical world, natural world, everything is in motion. So I'm sitting here uh, at a wooden desk. How is that in motion?
0: Yeah, yeah. So um, I talk about, I talk about tables and stuff in the, in the book, right? And so, you know, we can look at a wooden desk in a lot of different ways in terms of dialectics. You know, the fact that the wood that is, that is in the desk was once a living tree that was in its own like growing process um and then you know we might think well once that tree gets chopped down and sort of the life is, is gone from the tree but again it doesn't right like again that 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 material, source material then uh comes interaction comes into um into relation, or it interacts with you know a woodworker or you know maybe it gets it gets sawed down into lumber and it gets transformed into something new uh that was once this living tree and transformed into this piece of wood and then a woodworker might take it and transform that into a desk um, and so you can see that actually there's a there's a kind of move, there's kind of a development of movement that happens or um, um, or move or sort of say development as a form of movement from and transformation of one thing into another. But then even within that, you know that 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 piece of wood as a desk is also like moving within itself because even though it's not a living tree anymore, um, certainly it is matter, and matter has the movement of of atoms, you know, um, spinning and 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 uh, and just sort of going through its machination, so it is actually moving even though we can't see it um, and it's also degrading too right like even though that desk is sitting there it's not going to stay in that pristine state um, forever, whether you mess it up or maybe it catches fire someday or but even still it'll still rot and just and just sort of uh, continue to um, uh, to move into other states of matter and so so that desk that you have, even though you can knock on you can sit at it and you can you know knock your wrap it with your knuckles. Um, and it feels hard and firm and solid and, and just stable. It is actually, um, it is actually, it is matter in motion all the time.
1: You know, a lot of people listening to you would get dizzy and get a little, uh, <laughs> <laughs> feel like falling over. You seem to be ecstatic about this. Why yeah. does dialectics and the idea of perpetual motion give you hope instead of, uh, instead of a feeling of, of off centeredness or off kilteredness?
0: Well, because like, I, I you know, there's a few ways to go at that, at that to answer that question, Bill. Part of it is like this notion about about a, a stable world, right? Existing um, in some ways has this roots in sort of Western sort of positivity and positivistic sciences. I mean, um, and 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 so this idea of strict categories and we understand everything is as as uh, as as on its own and abstract and not in relation to everything else, like. There's a kind of there's kind of a safety in that um, and really this is really a, a, a worldview that is actually embraced by you know all sorts of peoples around the world there's direct connections to China there's direct connections to a lot of indigenous philosophies and African philosophies around you know this world in motion and in relation to each other and so I think finding it unsettling actually points to you know where your sort of orientation might be for someone thinking about this right and engaging with how they feel about it um, but also it just, it I, I get excited about it because for me, um, you know, it actually points to the power that we have, right? We are all doing this together and we are all on this, you know, the spinning ball of the planet and this matter in motion and we are matter in motion as human beings as well. And, and which means that, you know, we have like, we influence what happens in the world, right? We are not just Um, uh, travelers, you know, sitting idly on a train or or a plane or something, like, like, we are also driving it too. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, we, there's a beauty in in understanding really fundamentally that like, we can change things, um, you know, with the right work and with the right engagement with each other.
1: So I think, I think a lot of people, in the West, certainly a lot of my students, whenever they feel a contradiction in their thinking or their work, they want to resolve it very quickly. They wanna run away from the contradiction. You seem to be saying the better path is to dive into the contradiction and live within it. Am I right?
0: Yes, yes, I I would say that. um, And not that contradiction, not that I, you know, contradictions get resolved. So I I don't wanna pretend like, you know, it's, it's, you know, um, that, that I want people just to live purely in a space of, like, uncertainty. But um, we need to understand that it's within that contradiction and that analysis that comes from that, that we can start to see what the resolution can and maybe should be um, and start to work towards that. That's, and that, that's one piece of it. Um, but, but, like, again, dialectically, if contradiction is the source of all movement, then, right, that's, that's where development comes from. And if we're going to grow, then we have to, we have to just be in that space and part of it then becomes, and this is also challenging a lot of Western thinking, right, is to understand that 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 we need to think in terms of both sometimes hmm. and, and hold that together at once and be okay with that, right? Less either or and more both um, as as we live in that space.
1: And so go back a little bit and talk about what you mean by a primary contradiction and or a secondary contradiction. What does that mean?
0: Ah, <laughs> you're gonna now you're gonna get deep. Um, so there's there's a few different like in dialectics and this is arguable and people can argue about this anyways. Some, some like classic philosophers probably going to come after me for what I say on this podcast. But, um, you know, there's a few different kinds of contradictions in, in terms of dialectical thinking. Um, one would be like the fundamental contradiction. And that is a contradiction that, that is like a driving force underneath everything. And so, you know, Marxists might talk about, um, Marxists like me might talk about, um, a fundamental contradiction of capitalism is, uh, social production versus individual accumulation. Right? And we can see that playing out. Now, the thing is, though, even though that might be the thing that's always there, we might actually have a, another contradiction that feels more primary than that at any one time. And so, for instance, if you take the, you know, the uprisings around Black Lives Matter in 2020, for instance, very clearly, um, you know, anti-black racism was the primary contradiction that everybody was engaging with, even if uh, there, are, uh, there might be other fundamental contradictions also operating at the same time. And primary contradictions can shift depending on context and what's sort of in the forefront of people's minds. So sometimes sometimes the fundamental contradiction of capitalism around private accumulation and, and social production does come up to be the primary contradiction. And that's when you might see some, uh, you know, perhaps more transformational revolutionary movements happen. Um, and also sometimes primary contradictions can lead directly to challenging fundamental contradictions too. Um and so and so there's these kinds of relationships going on. And I think now the conversation has evolved really around, for instance, we're looking at racial capitalism, for instance, even that interplay of um you know uh you know white supremacy and how that how that interplays with with the basics the fundaments of capitalist production too. And you could probably argue that sometimes they might transform into each other depending on conditions as well.
1: I mean this is a very um particular US um reality right the the notion of racial capitalism the ro- notion of uh, race and class and figuring out how those things interact when we think of revolution or when we think of progress
0: yep yep yeah very, that's the thing like i think a lot of folks you know get on twitter you get on social media and see see people arguing about all this stuff and i, and I think some people sometimes people just forget that like you know in the us we have a very like we we have a very very specific conceptualization of race that isn't necessarily transnational and not agreed upon across the globe. And everyone has, all these other countries have their own trajectories and and sort of evolutions of their concepts of race, even if they might be, you know, built around sort of the same sort of scaffolding around like, you know, diff, defining difference and then looking at exploitation and, and mistreatment and that kind of stuff. But all these conversations, like this intersection in the US, right, it's pretty specific around, you know, we have, um, you know, colonization and and, dispossession for native peoples and the enslavement of Africans, and then, you know, the borders crossing into uh, the, the, you know, the border crossing, you know, w- between uh, U.S. and Mexico in terms of the U.S. border crossing into Mexico uh, after the war, um, and, then, and then, you know, Asian, Asian labor um, being brought in. Like, you, you get this particular mix of race being um, uh, really, you know, central to how capitalism unfolds and develops in this country. And so, yeah. but that's, that's us. And if you look at Mexico, it's different. If you look at Brazil, it's different. If you look elsewhere, other continents, it's different.
1: Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I've always admired about your work and I'm admiring about our conversation is that you, while you've thought deeply about these matters, you're also willing to take in the new. Or, or another way of saying it is you learn from your own activism. You learn from participating in the struggle, not just looking at it from afar. And one of the problems that we always have in, on the left is folks who are have figured it out in the academy or figured it out in their library, uh, but don't actually engage with the struggle itself. So you reference Black Lives Matter. That I think was a a real learning experience for those of us who participated.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, what <laughs> I was just I was just uh, you know, like, what good is theory if we're not in it too, right? Exactly. And we're not applying it, right? And exactly. so, and so that's that's one of those things around you know the concept of praxis and. And it's one of those dialectical relationships around, like, if we're going to be in the world, we have to be thinking about, like, we have to live our theories in a way that, you know, if, we're gonna, if they're going to be real and, and applicable. And, and as you talked about earlier on sort of living dialectically, that's what it is, too. It's just how do, how do we embody our politics? How do we embody our ideas in our daily lives and our treatment of other people and our relations with, with, with other people and the planet, for that matter? Um, and, and it's really striving to do all that, which means as an academic, I need to be bringing this stuff You know, um, uh, you know, I need to be walking hand in hand um, with all with the struggles, you know, in my community uh, and and with folks around me. Um, And I strive to do that, but I'm not perfect in it. And frankly, you know, I'm tired and, you know, the pandemic and everything like, you know, I don't go to as many protests as I used to or as I want to. And um, and, uh, you know, but I also just try and be here, you know, as best as I can as well.
1: You know, I, th- I think this is a really an important point because um, I said to my brother at his retirement party, you're retired, but you're not tired. On the other <laughs> hand, we're all tired. And one, one of the things I think is a myth is that people who are engaged in the struggle either think they're perfect or are trying to be perfect. I'm not trying to be perfect. I'm trying to live a human life. But when I think of you and I think of the ways you talk about living dialectically as a parent, living dialectically as a school reform activist, living dialectically as a scholar. That, I think, is really important. I'd like you to say a word about that as a parent, as a as a community person.
0: Yeah, you know, it's like, it's sort of like being constantly in sort of a Frarian state of self critical self-reflection, if I can mm. put it in, in a very broad term, right? Um, you know, like raising kids is hard, right? It is hard. And it is hard to do right. And I don't know if I'm doing it right. I don't want to pretend like I'm not a perfect parent. But, you know, when it comes to like, you know, being a partner to my wife and, and being a father to my son. I'm I'm always, you know, doing my best to just really, really, really sort of engage in like, okay, like what do I need to know about, about my son's state like where's he at in his in his human development, right? I mean he's twelve years old now, Bill. He's like he's wow. like getting big, right? Yeah. And, and and you know, and he's getting hair and like I mean like he's just like you know, he's like he's growing he's becoming a teenager, you know? Um and so, and so I have to like understand that, and I have to understand like, okay, did I, like how do I communicate with him? What's what's the best way to engage with him? How do I work out my own relations with him? And I'm always like working through that stuff and thinking about the politics of power of being a parent versus who he is as a kid, um, and trying not, you know, letting him be who's gonna who who he is, um, and trying not to impose myself too much on him, but yet also give him, you know, some guide some 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 guidelines and some borders around it, right? I mean, like. I mean, you know it. You, you know, it's like I you know. got kids. Like, yeah, it's like it's just it is what it is, right? Um, but it's that, and so what that means is I have to sometimes I have to stop and be like, okay, what I'm doing isn't working well enough. I need to go read some stuff and study and learn some more things, and then and then work on you know re engagement again and like getting it moving again. And really, it's like that, like that whole process is true for all of it. Whether it's me thinking about being an academic, you know, and, and connected to activism, whether it's being a partner, it's just there. It's just like. You know, we're out here, you know, in this cycle of sort of critical engagement and rele- learning and relearning um, and continually becoming and becoming anew again and, and taking that back out into the world again. And it's like just moving into that and moving in that space all the time and understanding that process is always ongoing and living in that movement in that space. Right. Um, yeah.
1: One of the things I've always uh, loved about being a teacher is exactly that, that you can't stand still. You cannot stand still. And your kids, you know, I was told over the weekend I was out in San Francisco— and kept running into people who were congratulating me on raising my son, Cheza Boudin, and they'd yeah. say, you did a great job raising him, and I would respond, he raised me, you know, I mean, yeah. and, and I feel that. I feel that my kids raised me and made me a grown-up. Uh, before I had them, I wasn't, and uh, my students teach me. I mean, I, I'm i teaching now at the University of Chicago, DePaul University, uh, Stateville Prison. Every one of my students teaches me every every term and it blows my mind. So it's one of the things that I think is so refreshing about being a teacher is you're constantly pushing the refresh the refresh button. You know, you're, you're oh, always yeah. learning, learning, learning.
0: No, I mean, my son has been one of my greatest teachers. And, you know, my wife and I joke about how it shouldn't be called child development. It should be called parent development. Because yeah, basically the kid is teaching us about them and where they're at and what we need to be doing. And that's always the case, engaging with my students and engaging in, in community activism, right? Communities are always teaching um, we're all like, you, as an educator, you just have to learn. That's why you can't think about states of perfection either, like you said r- earlier, um, because you know, as teachers, we know that no one is in a state of perfection, and no one's in a state of purity around any any of this stuff. And we're all we're all making mistakes and learning and just continuing to development because we're all in process.
1: And, and certainly, no classroom is perfect. They're always a mess, no. and you're always. I always say to teachers: end every day self-critically, start every day self-forgiving keep moving, keep moving, um, because that's the only way to be a teacher. But you know, you make me think when you say your son teaches you, and my kids, of course, taught me, I'm thinking of my oldest son, Zade, who's now 45, when he was a brand new infant, five minutes old, and the midwife put him on his mother's breast. And I watched them begin to nurse. And the question I keep asking is, who was teaching whom how to nurse? And the answer <laughs> is, They were both teacher and student. I mean, he had things to say at five minutes old that she had to listen to, and the dialogue began. So if, if he knew stuff at five minutes old, what does he know at five years or 15 years? It's absurd to pretend that they are all the time learning from us when they're all the time agents of their own lives. I mean, it's so beautiful and staggering and dizzying.
0: Yep. Yep. And also another clear sort of embodiment and illustration of like, it's, it's a dialectical relationship that is just, we can't, it's undeniable, you know. Um, and there's sometimes where maybe I might be the main teacher. And there's also sometimes where the kid might be the main teacher. Yeah, and that's what's going on, you know, and the yeah, same absolutely. thing with students and everybody else. So.
1: Certainly your 12 year old is expert on his own life. And you have to be aware of that if you're going to be a good parent. And so I, I, I think that's a, a marvelous explanation of the dialectics of parenting. But I want to go back again in your life, because I, I, I think I'd be interested in you talking a bit about um, what history you stand on. Where do you come from? What history do you stand on? And, and then a little bit, what future do you stand for, which I know a bit, but I also know your history. I think people would be interested in what history you stand on.
0: Yeah, yeah, and you know, Bill, I come from a, a old radical sort of commie family, and so I'm always and you'll you'll get this. Um, I was just talking with my my wife about this too, because she's got some similar histories and like, um, you know, we are we grew up careful about what we divulge in in public spaces, right? Because because we know the histories of U.S. suppression, and we also know the histories of what's happened to our own families. Um, so I kind of say all this, keeping that in mind, right? But uh, you know, I actually. Like if you go back to my family history, I come from sort of a, a, a you know probably a couple generations of like Chinese radicals. Um, I didn't put this really in the book, but you know my my grandfather um, in Hawaii, he was a first generation immigrant to Hawaii, um, but he was actually a Maoist in a, in a very predominantly Kuomintang Chinese American community in Hawaii. Right? Um, he was a poet too. I have never read the poetry, um, but he had he had, he identified some with those politics. Um, I don't know if he lived those politics in his life, but he certainly that was what he brought in. I heard there was you'd love this, you know, uh the stories, the family lore is that um he would he was he was a good poet and he would go to poetry readings and then fist fights would break out because of the politics uh with people and in, in, in the Chinese community around around the poems, right? And then uh and then my dad actually, you know, grew up pretty conservative um and ended up going to MIT and actually got his PhD in physics by like the age of 24, and you got to think about the timing of this. Um, he integrated his frat at MIT. Um, you know, uh, it, like MIT, like this was like imagine being a 7 year old kid getting on a long plane ride from Hawaii, going going to to you know Boston, right? And so um, you know, back in like whatever, back in like the 50s, um, and so uh, and so there's this history there. And then my dad actually, um, after he became a professor. He radicalized. He used to argue with his dad. And then he, then my dad, you know, radicalized. And I, my dad actually became a communist and became active in a, in a cadre organization and was organizing against, you know, Vietnam and sort and of trying to work towards revolution, right? And so so I partially stand on this. I don't know on all that. And I don't know if I, I, I couldn't say that I identify as a communist per se. Um, uh, I think part of that is being, I think there's a whole generation of us who were kids of these, who are red diaper babies, right? Kids of these radicals. From these cadre groups who saw what those cadre groups did to their parents and maybe to their families and are kind of a little hesitant about like, yeah. ah, do we really want to like, is this like I don't know if I can commit to that, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, um but you know, I definitely identify as a socialist. I understand capitalism is ridiculous like is unreformable and is killing kills us as people, kills the planet. There's just no like there's just no negotiating with capitalism around that, and so I understand that very firmly, and that's definitely where I land uh, uh, politically, and my work sort of all aims in that direction. Um, so that's my family heritage, at least, um, probably more than I've told uh, any any other folks.
1: Did you grow up in the Bay Area?
0: No, no, I grew up mostly in the Seattle area, and then also, and then and then in Connecticut. Yeah, and then uh, my dad was in the Bay for a number of years, and I visited him a lot after my folks divorced. So
1: was he part of your wocoon?
0: No, he was not part
1: of IWK. Okay, I thought he was. Um, I remember them from from when I was younger. Um, uh, and what future do you stand for?
0: Uh, I don't know. What do you, What do you mean by that? <laughs> That's a big I question. Mean, I mean, <laughs> what do you
1: What what is you, you know? I'm often accused, and you you may have even accused me of this, of being a bit of a romantic and an idealist. And I always <laughs> say guilty, uh, yeah, guilty, yeah, yeah. because I i. Not be not because I'm naive, but because I have ideals um, that I want to live within. I want to try for, and I have a. a I don't have a worked-out model of what the future is, but I have a, a, a utopian ideal that i would like to walk toward and when people say what good is utopia i say it's good for walking because you can walk toward it step by step and uh and so i'd be interested in you know kind of when you think about what we might accomplish what we could accomplish the politics of hope what do you hope for
0: yeah and you know i may have accused you of that before but you know i've i'm much more matured now and uh (laughs) certainly certainly evolved as well and i think i understand Uh, personally, I mean, the politics of hope are really important. Um, And also thinking about utopias, like if we can't envision, you know, new possibilities, then then we don't know where we're going, right? And so, and so, you know, so currently, I feel very strongly about all of that. Um, You know, I mean, really, if if I'm dreaming about our world, right, like, and it's probably much the same as what you would dream about around, around, like, um, if I'm talking about, about humanity, I want us to be, to feel safe and thriving and be able to have food and be able to have places to live and be able to be educated and have artistic and musical and, you know, like lives that are full that aren't just based on, you know, working a job zillion hours a day and, you know, busting our ass. Like, like we have, like there's, there is a, a future for us as, as humans that doesn't require all the suffering and and all this like human exploitation and similarly it doesn't require all the exploitation of the planet right um and understanding we can't separate those things at all and so so that you know that's what i see you know and 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 like like there's a beauty there for us to be at and it, we see it existing in bits and pieces now i think um um but uh you know i i, I want that world right where where everyone's taken care of, honestly, um, and they and they have they find the space to love each other and and take care of each other, right? Um, so I don't know. It's, I guess it's I guess it's simple when you boil it down to that. I don't well, know. you
1: know, it is it's simple and it's excruciatingly complex. But if we don't keep putting a vision up there then we, uh, I mean, one of the things I've always loved about dialectics is it gives me tremendous hope that is the way things are is not the way they will be tomorrow. That doesn't, and another world is coming. Doesn't mean it'll be a better world. It could be a much worse world, but we have to recognize that since we're in motion and if we organize ourselves in certain ways, perhaps we can get exactly to the vision that you're imagining, and it won't be perfect, and we won't be perfect, because we're people. But nonetheless, it could be so much more joyful, so much more peaceful, so much more just. Um, That's what I think we should... Just better. That's what I Just better. Just better. For that, exactly. Things could be better, and the way things are is not inevitable, and we shouldn't settle for it. I mean, so one, one last question, and this is an easy one, just like what is dialectics? This one's even easier. <laughs> um, the, you know, this is called a seminar on freedom. So what is freedom to you?
0: Oh, goodness gracious. That's, you know, I remember back, you know, back in the nineties when I was an undergrad and I was studying and, um, you know, we're studying bell hooks, and she was defining her her definition of oppression back then was sort of lack of choice, and I and I got that and understood that, and I love bell hooks. But um, I start, you know, I feel like that everything has shifted so much now in terms of how we understand, you know, choice, um, you know, and so when I think about freedom, I don't think about it as sort of freedom of choice, right? I don't I don't think of it that way because we know how that's how that's used around, you know, individualism and neoliberalism and 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 all this other stuff. Um, you know, shoot, I don't, you know, Bill. I don't even know. I think you might. I think you might have got me because it's it's like for me, if if I'm feeling free, there's like if state of if I'm feeling when in a moment when I'm feeling free, and I have a lot of privilege, and so I I know I feel much relatively more free than so many people than millions and millions of people around the world. Um, you know, um, I'm feeling fulfilled. I'm feeling like, you know, like I own my labor. I'm feeling like I love, you know, the people around me and I'm a community with people and I'm feeling joyful, right, and I'm feeling creative and productive from that kind of perspective. Not a capitalist production, but more like I'm, I'm, I'm making, I'm doing things and making things that are an expression of myself um, and and that are honest and true expressions that I'm not I'm not alienated. Go back to the Marxist concept of alienation that I'm not I'm not alienated from the things that I'm doing and the people that I'm around, um, and and so maybe that's maybe maybe that's a good place for me to land on how you know how I'm defining freedom is is um, you know not feeling not feeling alienated right when I'm in connection with everything and I'm and I'm embracing and knowing and feeling that connection sort of to its fullest.
1: You know, a lot of what you just named are things that I would say, uh, I, I would say in our privilege and including our privilege during the pandemic of having people we love and and not not being on the front lines of suffering. But I think that what you some of the things you named are exactly what stand in the way of many people's freedom, that is a sense of you know uh, fulfillment a sense of um, your labor going to something worthwhile and so on uh, but but I'll give you one thing to think about and for me freedom I is a <laughs> freedom is a is a paradox and, and and I appreciate what you said when you began which is in the American context freedom always gets boiled down to individualism and individualism is toxic in our culture and therefore it doesn't take us very far. Um, but, but I think, I think that for me, the paradox is that freedom in its most basic sense is the development of a sense with other people of an obstacle to your freedom. That is, it's a, it's weird, but it's when you see something that is standing in the way of your freedom, you never felt freer. And I, I think this is true for you and for many people listening. When I was in the George Floyd demonstrations, when I was in the, in the Roe v. Wade demonstrations a couple of weeks ago, um, when I was underground fighting the state, uh, I felt freer then than I feel in a daily kind of habitual going through the motions of life. I mean— I remember this moment in Stanley Nelson's film, uh, The Black Panther Party, where these two guys who survived the L.A. shootout, they describe the shootout, and then this one guy turns to Stanley Nelson, the filmmaker, and says, and for those few hours, I felt like a free Negro. And you say, but wait, you were about to be killed. Yes, but I was fighting against unfreedom and it's this weird thing yeah. if you don't know what unfreedom is how would you know what freedom is and if you think of freedom as social not individual then you begin to kind of develop a sense of trying to figure out what those obstacles are and i think that that might be helpful
0: no no that, that's a great point and i and and i think i i feel yeah there there's there's a thing about about freedom at, you know being in community with other people uh which some folks might say is like that might sound contradictory to some people where like you can only find freedom with other people, which means you're not you're not by yourself to be free by yourself um but I also really appreciate what you just said because it really points to I think there are these moments of like you know there's a reason why some people feel free in a demonstration. I remember as a kid like going to my first demonstrations and walking in the middle of the street and being like like. Okay, all, all, the whole apparatus that's like that weighs down on my common sense thinking about everyday life is gone. Or even when the WTO protests happened in, in Seattle, um, and and downtown was just shut down, and there was like, the like that whole the whole sort of state thing was just gone, uh, and, and people were just thinking differently, and you had this sort of space to kind of like be in this this moment that existed within a crisis. Right for the state in many ways, um, and and so when you're talking about the shooting in LA, I can see the same kind of thing, right? Like you're fighting against this thing, and you've committed to this point, and then suddenly, the the boundaries have disappeared, and there's and there's there's a time period where you feel a, 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 a kind of freedom, which which I get, I see that.
1: I love the image of walking down the middle of the street as a young person. I love the image of the WTO, because what's interesting about that is it's also a contradiction because in some ways it was more treacherous, more dangerous, more uncertain. But the walls that fell down weren't just laws about walking in the street. It was your mind that blew apart. It was that there was suddenly a vision appeared before you. And that's where freedom lies. It lies in contesting the, the constraints that are put on us or the ways in which we're made to be dehumanized whether we're you know whether it's me myself or my brothers and sisters or the person asking for money on the street corner down the street when i identify with that that's when i feel free i identify with changing that with overthrowing it um yeah. that's when i become free nice
0: nice i love that i love that
1: um, listen, thank you so much for your time, brother. I I really appreciate you. I appreciate the way you think. This book absolutely blows my mind. I just read it again and again. I find a lot in it. I love the last chapter, uh, and I love the opening stuff. But it's really a good book. So, thanks
0: for thanks, doing Bill. It. I really I appreciate you, Van. You, you got to understand. I still hold. I don't know if you remember, but the one time, one of the times you came to visit UW Madison, I was a grad student there, and then we had an evening. And we got to walk. It was dark, and we were walking like at, at night, and And, um, uh, you've always been, um, you know, you're one of the kindest people I know, but also you've always been so supportive of me in this work and this path and, and trying to figure out what it means to be a radical in this space. And so I just appreciate you so much and just wanted you to know that.
1: You're too kind. I appreciate you. And we will see each other soon, brother.
0: All right. Take care. Bye-bye.
1: Wow. I had a great time with Wayne. Are you okay?
2: I'm Okay.
1: Cool. Let's move on to reports from the front row, pages from One Middle Schooler's Notebook, where we look at the world through the eyes of Light Eileen, as she kind of ponders being 14, just about to end middle school and gone to high school. So there are two things I wanted to check in with you about. One is I know you went on the traditional class trip to D.C. How was that?
2: I did. It was very fun. It was um, long and our days were... Very packed. They would wake us up every morning at six o'clock with a old fashioned call on the hotel phone. And then we would leave at 630 on the shuttle. And then we would get back at around 11 o'clock every night.
1: Wow. And did you have a lot of independence in Washington?
2: Um, Yeah. When we went to like food courts and some museums and some places like Monticello, they would just give us a $20 bill and kind of let us go around and be like, be back by five. My friend and I were always late, always separated from the group. It was pretty embarrassing, but it was fun.
1: Embarrassing, but intentional?
2: I wouldn't say it was intentional. We actually tried humiliatingly hard to like (laughs) stay with the group and to not be late, but we, we failed. It wasn't good.
1: What else did you see in DC? What were some of the highlights, some of the places you went, some of the museums?
2: Um, we went to Monticello, we went to the White House, the Capitol, the Jefferson Memorial, the Lincoln Memorial, we went to the National Gallery, we went to the Archives, the National Archives, and we went to the history of, or the Black History Museum.
1: And you had told me that Monticello was kind of a contradiction for you and your friends. Why?
2: Uh, because the people who worked there had this narrative about Jefferson that he was the only perfect founding father. And as a bunch of disaffected and like angry at adults, teenagers, we did not appreciate that narrative.
1: And what about the African-American Museum of History? What struck you there?
2: That was quite amazing. I think um, my, my well not favorite part, but the part that impacted me the most was they were playing uh, The Birth of a Nation mm. on a television screen. Um, which was pretty interesting. I watched it over and over with my friends, and we kind of talked about it.
1: Birth of a Nation is the D.W. Griffith film from way back in the 1920s, and it's a, it's the rise of a kind of a the Ku Klux Klan, really. Mm-hmm. That's what it is, and it's kind of an anti-black, kind of historically prominent racist um, film.
2: Yeah, it was. It was more into. I've I heard of the film, but I've never seen it. Um, And it was more, it caught me a little off guard. It was more intense than I had imagined.
1: Mm. And it's, of course, uh, not a sound picture. It's a silent picture, right?
2: It is a silent picture. There was no sound.
1: And a lot of caricatures and a lot of stereotypes.
2: And a lot of blackface.
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, you and I were talking a couple of weeks ago about the second thing I'd like to talk about, which is you had read, I think, with your class "Raising in the Sun by the Chicago author Lorraine Hansberry. And you said it was your, at that moment, your favorite book. Um, Tell us about Raisin in the Sun.
2: It was pretty amazing. I thought that the prose and the writing and the words were very believable as a family. Um, And at the beginning, I didn't feel like I had any affection for any of the characters. But by the end, you kind of feel like you have to root for them because they've all messed up so badly, but tried so hard.
1: Did they mess up or did the world mess them up or both?
2: Both. I think that the world was never fair to them, but, you know, when they, when they tried, sometimes they slipped a little bit. Uh,
1: but you compared the, the play by Hansberry um, to the poem by Langston Hughes, from which the play gets its title. Talk a little bit about Hughes's poem.
2: Um, Hughes' poem, Harlem... The, uh, the words are, what happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load or does it explode? Um, I had an idea about the poem um, that each line actually corresponds to a different character in A Raisin in the Sun, a different family member. For example... Um, Well, does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? The classic line is uh, Ruth Younger, who I consider to be the main character of the book. Um, I think that crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet is Benitha Younger, the kind of surly, sarcastic, disaffected college student. Um, Sags like a heavy load, I think, is Mama, the grandmother, Ruth's mother-in-law, Walter Younger's uh, mother. And I think, or does it explode, is Walter Younger, because he's one of the ones that messes up the worst. He makes a terrible, terrible choice in uh, near the end of the play, and they are all really affected by it. And I think that's a kind of explosion.
1: So it's interesting because I never made that comparison. I knew that the title was from the Hughes poem, but I never thought to kind of analyze the poem in light of the characterization in the play. That's very very cool. Are you, you yourself, you've written poetry and you've read some of your poetry on the podcast and you've written short stories. Have you ever written a play?
2: Uh No, I wrote a short play for a drama class and um the poem I read was, that was a little while ago, right? It was something mm-hmm. I had written for seventh grade humanities. Right. Yeah, that, I liked that one. <laughs> that was, that but was fun course, to make. Of course,
1: I want you to keep writing and you do keep writing, right? You are a writer.
2: I would like to think so.
1: Well and and are you do you have aspirations to be a writer as you get older, as you go into high school, college, and beyond?
2: Definitely. I I've been trying to switch my love for writing over from my love for the validation I get for it to mm. love of actually doing it. Uh. Um and right now I plans for my future seem absolutely horrifying. I am really just have my eye on college, which is terrible. I know it makes no sense. It's you're bad only for me. I, I'm only 14, I understand. But the idea of college just feels like not only amazing, but so scary. <laughs> Cause my brain immediately jumps from like the idea of college to like, but what if you can't get into any colleges? And uh, I, I panic I'm like, oh my God, you're going to live in your parents' basement. When you're 40, it's very scary. Um, But that's kind of what I'm focusing on right now.
1: That's very neurotic, lighting. It's very, yeah. Because you you are a a brilliant, brilliant person and a good student and a great writer. So my advice is keep writing, keep rising, and take a deep breath.
2: (laughs) Okay, folks, let's dive into the wreckage and swim as hard as we can in the direction of our dreams. Let's try to stay all the way human.
1: Thanks to our friends at The Dazzling Podcast, Ergo, to my co-conspirator Light I Lee, to Jordan Allen for producing and engineering, and to Roxana Espos for everything else. Go forward, keep rising, and know your life is an entire universe with joy in my heart and freedom on my mind. Until next time. Under the Tree is hosted and written by Bill Ayers. It is edited by me, Jordan Allen. The theme music is by Tom the Night Watchman Morello. Artwork is designed by Ryan Alexander Tanner. Check out his website, ohyesverynice.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and
2: subscribe to Under the Tree wherever you get your podcasts.